Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the How Do You Like Them Apples edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast here in our hothouse Sylvan studio perched high above Washington, surrounded by three of my favorite people. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, Shane. We're here with Mark Hoffman Wittes, as always, and Ben Wittes. Hi, guys. And back again by popular demand. By, by popular demand. Or unpopular demand. demand. <laughs> Susan Hennessy. Super media Thank star, you for Susan Hennessy. Me. You've had quite a week. Inescapable this week. Yeah. It turns out if you're willing to defend the government's position <laughs> at in 7 o'clock in the morning, somebody is interested in talking to you. And you're not even paid to do that anymore. <laughs> pretty amazing. Well, I mean... That you know of. Well, that we know of. <laughs> a little freelance business. You never really leave the agency, do you? you government can, shill to the bitter You can take agents. the government shill out of the agency, but you can't take the agency out of the government shill. Yeah. The newest handmaiden of power, Susan Hennessy. She's vying for your title, Ben. No, no, no. She has her own title. Somebody oh, tweeted at her this week that she was a national security state grifter who loves Ooh. feudalism. And oh, feudalism, <laughs> too. And, and I thought that was the best insult directed at anybody associated with lawfare, like, yeah. ever. Yeah, good creative insult. Well, look, I'm kind of net neutral on feudalism. I don't know that I love it. Um, but, but yeah, there was something sort of elegant about it, right? No obscenities. And thoughtful. Right, right. It's that I was a, a, a grifter for the national security state. Yeah. Verifiably true, except the grifter part. Not I, a grifter. There's no grift because I haven't. There's no grift. You actually believe this. You're pretty straightforward about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not yeah. playing a role. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and I love feudalism. <laughs> so you learned about yourself. <laughs> well, if you ever go to the Great Wall of China... Um, be careful about that because there is a sign uh, on the Great Wall that is translated into rough English, which tells you about the prohibitions when you're on the wall. Yeah, one of and which there, is it does say no feudalism, no preaching feudalism no. or superstitious beliefs. So, All right, well, right. I will also no making of the bowls everywhere else, but not on the Great Wall <laughs> of China, exactly. <laughs> but you will on rational security. Uh, we got a lot of news to get to this week, but first, um, we've been making a habit of sort of recapping the election slash debates and embracing the seemingly now inescapable fate that, yes, Donald J. Trump will be the Republican nominee for president. Trump, 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 Trump. This is Trump. really Trump. happening, guys. It's happening. Trump, Trump. I, for yeah. one, I really, I am, I, am, I am embracing this moment. I. You seem almost gleeful oh, I am this gleeful. prospect. This is going to be, this is crazy. I mean, it's this is truly like journalistic heaven. Yes, it is journalistic heaven. I really feel like but I'm living in an alternate like, universe. In the sense, you represent all media to me. Yes. Uh, like, I want you to embrace this. Live with the monster you have created yourself. Totally. Right? Like, this You guys is earned your fault. this. Look, I am not a political journalist, so I can criticize political journalists, mm -hmm. you know? And of of course we're a part of this. I mean, yes, we're, we're in a symbiotic relationship But here. can we agree, like, it's not funny anymore? It's no, it's so not funny. But I actually think it never was funny. Like, like, from the time that he said he wanted to build a wall to keep out Mexicans and they were all... Um, rapists. Rapists. Um, well, some are very good people. Right, and, and we'll bring the good was, ones back. It was back. sort of Started. Andrew Dice Clay funny for a little while, like outrageous funny because because it was transgressive and it made you uncomfortable, but now it just makes you uncomfortable. I actually yeah. don't think it was ever funny, and I thought the cheering crowds at that stuff was always very upsetting, and it's only gotten more upsetting as it hasn't gone away. Um, and I do think whatever else he accomplishes, uh, he's made acceptable things that, in the political discussion, things that we have not been acceptable for a long time for politicians to say and contemplate, and that our political system has rightly turned its face away from. And, and now we, you know, I don't think it will be an endless amount of time before another populist demagogue 
uh, runs on similar themes. And I think that's you know quite apart from whatever else he may or may not accomplish. That's a, a, a very upsetting thing. Okay, so fair enough, although I would note that the history you just referred to suggests that this is not a, a one-way street and that there will be a point at which the, the pendulum will swing back, or at least that's what I'm counting on in order to go to sleep at night. But I do think that for purposes of the podcast, which really is what's important here, uh, it does mean that we're going to have to do a, a deep dive into Donald Trump's national security philosophy pretty soon. So will he. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think maybe that's like at the point, the week he clinches the nomination, I suspect we will need to go back and, and go through what he has actually said and what he really believes about foreign policy, other than that we're going to win. Um, There'll be so much winning. There'll be a lot of winning. And we're going to talk about all that winning. Yeah. But in, as long as we can be in denial, uh, I consider denial a gift from God, and I'm going to honor it as such. If you want to stay in denial, just don't read the exit polls. Because it has a thing, it's this thing called a durable coalition that he's building. Oh, man, just don't tell me. I don't want to know. I'm going to stay in denial for <laughs> yeah. a little while longer. But what do I know? I'm not a political journalist. All right, this week on the podcast, FBI Director Jim Comey bites into Apple. The Obama administration unveils its plan for closing Guantanamo. Just kidding. Uh, and the Homeland Security Department will start scouring social media for warning signs of violent extremism, uh, plus object lessons, as always. Um, I'll start. Uh, my wordplay is a very provocative uh, uh, sort of stakes-raising blog post that the FBI Director Jim Comey wrote um, on this um, little-known website called Lawfare. Widely oh. regarded. Yeah. yeah. Washington that Post place. referred to it as speaking to a, an elite and specialized audience. But, but didn't bother to spell its name correctly. Wait, what? How did they spell they it? How can you misspell Lawfare? Oh, uh, at least it wasn't like law, F-A-I-R. No, but... <laughs> but I want know. an AP rule on it, though, right? How do you... Is it like a commission? Yeah. Lawfare, kind of like, to? what is the fair price for a ticket to the law? <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? <laughs> right. Um, but fair to say, like, and I don't know, maybe Ben wants to talk about the behind the scenes of this. I don't know. But, uh, you know, it came out on a Sunday night. Um, I don't know if it's a coincidence, but the next morning, Monday, Tim Cook sent an email to all of Apple's employees, uh, which was promptly leaked to the media. Um, this is, I mean, it's this, this fight that is playing out in a, in a courtroom in California over whether to compel Apple to assist in extracting data from a cell phone used by one of the San Bernardino shooters is it's playing out in public in a way that, frankly, I mean, it's hard to remember a sort of an issue that's this seemingly narrow and involves, like, frankly, compelled assistance that happens all the time uh, playing out in this way. You've got the FBI director uh, now, you know, sort of feuding, if not directly and directly, with the CEO of one of the biggest and most important technology companies. He sit, Cook is sitting down. Uh, today, as we record this on Wednesday, for an interview with uh, ABC News. You've got tech CEOs from other places yep. lining up on one side or the other. Yep. It's really, it, it, it's, I mean, it's very clear that whatever happens on Friday when Apple responds with its own, you know, brief uh, in the case, and presumably the legal battle is going to go on for some time, um, there's clearly like, a public debate that has been ignited here, and it's involved senior officials from these very powerful organizations. And... You know, and we now have seen polls coming out on where the public stands on this. Pew had a poll this last week. 51% narrow majority sides with the FBI. But um, only 35, 38% sides with Apple. That's correct. And the rest are undecided. It does not break down along partisan lines. You tend to side more with the FBI if you're older than if you're younger. Um, but this really is something that has, not, has captured the imagination, has captured conversation. And... Um, yeah, I uh, even my dentist was talking about it the other day, and I'm talking about it with friends who like never weigh in on this kind of thing. Yeah. And when your dentist talks to you about it, it's really unfair because you can't you can't, you say, can't anything say anything back. Anything. I had what it, is I the deal with well, that? I can't hear you. <laughs> Come on. You what? What's the deal with dentists? What's the deal? What's <laughs> with dentists? <laughs> that, that's for another podcast. <laughs> no, um, I, I love my dentist, and, and he actually had some thoughtful views on the question, but it's hard when you can't participate in your part of the conversation. It's true. Um, but I will say that this post, I mean, it had the effect of basically, I mean, 
making very clear and very succinct the FBI's position on this. And it has become, I mean, it is, it, it's laid out in the briefs, but if you were just an average person not reading these legal documents, you now know where the FBI stands. It was very effective in that regard, I thought. Apple, you know, it, it's become the debate, the debating points are very clear now. But Ben, maybe, you, I don't know to what extent you want to talk about publishing that piece and what that was like. So it's not the first time that Comey has uh, written a piece for Lawfare. And it's actually not the first time either that he's written a piece for Lawfare on the going dark subject. Um, he did it once before. Um, you know, he, uh, I think part of the background is that it is relatively rare that the FBI uh, has situations in which the what it considers the exigent necessities of, of investigations cause it to be the front page public news debate of the week. Um, you know, it's not that it doesn't do things that are controversial, but uh, usually uh, it has it's not up against, you know, the, you know, the public relations power of, of an entity like Apple and without, you know, a sort of an ability to explain what it's doing and uh, how it's doing it. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think he had some things to say and, you know, we, first of all, we'd always, we'd publish Tim Cook too if he wants to, you know, weigh in instead of on his own website. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're all, you know, if uh, Apple wants, you know, equal time on Lawfare, we're more than happy to. And actually, you know, we've run a bunch of tech companies uh, in their uh, views of security and data and whatnot. Uh, most recently, Intel, uh, you know, Intel's Privacy Council had a piece on Lawfare. So, you know, from our point of view, it's... Uh, you know, this is an issue that Susan and I have a relatively strong view on. It's not an issue that Lawfare institutionally has a view on, because Lawfare doesn't have views on things institutionally. Um, and we try to be the home for the debate. And so if the FBI director is going to participate publicly in the debate, of course we're going to, you know, publish it. And we would publish the other side of it, too. And, you know, here's asking Apple, you know, if Tim Cook, or for that matter, you know, if the President of the United States, who clearly has mixed feelings about this and is also this week writing on a different blog, uh, he wrote a piece on SCOTUS blog on uh, this morning. And so, you know, I'm more than happy to publish anybody who has a, is a significant voice in the debate, uh, of whom the FBI director certainly is one. You know, it's I, I, a couple of things, I guess. The first is, I, I don't really know if it's fair to say that Apple shot first, but as a casual observer, it seems to me that in the PR side of this, the sort of appealing to the public, Apple shot first. And um, the FBI, although it doesn't typically engage in that kind of PR campaign, felt you know, that it needed to do something to make its case beyond the legal arguments that it was making in court, so fair enough. But it also seems to me that the, the poll you cited, Shane, um, suggests that the point I made in last week's uh, Triple Entente Beer Summit podcast that politically Apple does not have, is on shaky ground here with an American public that's fearful about terrorism. That poll data, I think, backs me up on that point. Even though it's a narrow majority in favor of the FBI, there is not a majority uh, for Apple. There's, you know, there's, there's a small proportion of the American public that is willing to go with Apple to the we want 100% unbreakable privacy that the government can't get into. It's an extreme position. And so I think what Apple's got to decide is, you know, okay, this might be good for appealing to our specific customer base, but it might be bad PR for us as a company. Look, and Kelly's taken some hits sort of from criticism based on the tone of the piece, right, that it was this passioned plea and that was um, somehow unacceptable. Um, I think that, you know, his, his piece makes two, I think, really important points, um, and points that I don't know how he would be able to make them otherwise. Uh, the first is kind of that he's just doing his job, right? Like, as the director of the FBI, he is charged with investigating, um, investigating crimes, 
like to the legal limit of, of his ability to investigate that. And yes, of course, the FBI doesn't fully investigate every possible crime. This is a pretty important one. And so I think that, you know, just, just to sort of make that point that this is not, um, you know, this is not him taking a stand against Apple. This is doing the job that the American people have asked him to do. I think there's a second point that he makes um, about recognizing that the technology is evolving and is going to render this, this debate sort of moot. Um, and I think what he's really saying there and that, that's missing in this conversation is... And he means because eventually the iPhone 6, you won't be able to do this. Exactly. Too. But like, right, the, the technology is going to move. This is about help in this case. And, and maybe not just in this one case, but in this operating system or in this fact pattern. And so I think what he's, uh, I think what it sort of, whether he's trying to do it or not, what, what it sort of elucidates is this... Uh, Jim Comey is not trying to direct Apple to build its systems in any particular way. He couldn't if he tried. What he's saying is, based on the capabilities you currently have, I believe that you can and should give this help. And I think what, what Comey is sort of doing is, it's an appeal to pragmatism, right? That at this point, the debate has become I mean, really sort of captured by ideologues. This, um, this cryptologic purity, this notion that um, absolutely any lawful access is there for a backdoor, mm -hmm. regardless of sort of how that term is used as a term of art, mm -hmm. and is therefore bad, um, and is therefore unacceptable, that like, it's almost impossible to have a debate whenever the other side is coming from a position of essentially ideological purity. Likewise, it's not really helpful to have senators like Tom Cotton weighing in with, this is Apple protecting terrorists, right? That kind of or, or the, the people of the mindset of, you know, Apple has no rights here. They should always sort of defer to the FBI. And so I think what Comey is sort of staking on the territory um, is saying, hey, I'm a reasonable guy. I'm doing my job. Um, this is, you know, I believe that this is, a law, this is a correct application of the law. Like, all you reasonable, smart people in the world who must believe that there's a solution, come engage in a conversation with me. And I think a blog post is actually a relatively open way to do that. I wonder if there's something else at work here, too, though. I mean, reading that piece, <clears throat> you know, and I found myself wondering to what degree is this just Jim Comey making a case versus Jim Comey master strategist? Because there's a school of thought, I think, that the Bureau has sort of, in a way, even, like, laid a trap for Apple, and it has sort of, like, fallen right into it. Like, they're losing, I think, I, I honestly think they're losing the PR battle on this one. The poll kind of bears that out. There is certainly a group of people for whom um, <clears throat> a Wall Street Journal reporter put it recently, it's like the death penalty. Like everybody has an opinion on it, but a small number of people care deeply one way or the other about it. Maybe that's what's going on here. I mean, to what extent do you guys think that this was, you know, Comey sort of deciding to take this public, which he does not always do with these kinds of things, that there is that he knows very well that this is about shaping a debate of ideas, and about not just about this way, maybe just this one phone, but there is a broader principle that he clearly is in favor of, of, of you know, lawful government access and being able to compel companies to provide assistance, which we all know is required of other companies, not necessarily Apple, but it seems like he's got more in mind than just this one phone, well, even though he insists on that in the post. It's, it's also, whether he's trying to shape broader public opinion or not, there will be a political slash policy discussion about this at some point in Congress. And so shaping the environment for that debate, I think, is important. Look, I, I mean, I think the question of whether it's about one phone or about uh, phones is the wrong question. Uh, there is an exigent necessity in this case, if you're trying to investigate this case, to get into this phone. Um, and that's about this phone. If you're the FBI director who's been talking for the last year and a half about the going dark problem, the issue is not limited to this phone. Uh, everybody has been saying, show us the cases. You know, show us where there's really a problem. And this is a doozy of a case to show what you've been talking about, that there's really a problem, both to the courts, to the Congress, and to the general public. And so I, you know, Comey is a, is a uh, media savvy and, um, and politically astute guy who understands that you don't want your banner case to be a garden variety case of a sort that nobody would really care if Apple gave you access 
except the immediate family of, of a certain group of people involved. Um, on the other hand, the people who went public with this was Apple, you know, not the FBI. And the FBI talked about it last week in the context of a hearing in which they also mentioned this uh, woman dead in Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, and it mentioned it in roughly the same order of importance as that. Um, and, and there then, are at least a dozen other cases the Wall Street Journal reported this week. Right. Presumably that comes from, you know, <laughs> Department of Justice officials. But, right. You know. So, I mean, the, pe the people who, you know, made a big public issue out of this is Apple. And, um, and I think... Uh, to some degree, Apple has really, as, as I said last week at the Beer Summit, I think Apple's really overplayed its hand here. They think that the politics of Silicon Valley, where it's obvious to people that, of course, there's no higher value than the security of a phone, uh, is translates to the general attitudes of, of the general public. Uh, I'm not by any means where Tom Cotton is. But I think Tom Cotton is probably a little bit closer to the center of gravity of a lot of people's politics on this than Apple is. And in terms of the matter of strategy, I think it's important to note that really Apple has created all of the conditions at play here, right? So you have Comey sort of talking about voluntary cooperation, this trip out to um, trip out to Silicon Valley, you get know, the sort of high-level summit. Um, you have a, apparently a two-month attempt at voluntary cooperation. Um, you know, it's really been Apple that has been pushing this to the courts, essentially. Um, and I do think that uh, that Ben is right that there that there's been some strategic misjudgment here. Um, and I think that they're starting to realize it. And I think that the way the real tell here um, is that they've said that they support this creation of a commission. Um, so Senator Warner and. Uh, 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 Congressman McCall are about to introduce legislation, the formation of this, um, you know, uh, digital security commission. Um, sort of Apple has endorsed it. The Wall Street Journal has now endorsed this idea. Look, um, two things that are notable. One, the question of whether or not commissions are where good, you know, difficult issues go to die in Washington, D.C., and this is just like Apple's attempt to sweep this under the rug. The other thing that's really notable, though, is that Apple is not calling for legislation. They're calling for the formation of a commission. And I think that's their acknowledgement of recognizing that if this does go to legislation, which is, by the way, what their legal argument has been, that the legislation is required, that if it does go to legislation, it, they are not going to be sort of the victor right. of what that looks like. I think that's very true, Suva. Yeah, I think they're scared. It, there's, they're scared of a CALEA-like law that would now finally be applied to information service providers, right, which although, it never has been. Although I think arguably they should be more scared of the absence of a CALEA-like law. CALEA, after all, has given the telecoms a lot of certainty, True. a lot of a stable operating environment, and legal immunity. Um, so it's also given them a reputation among some quarters, particularly people who care about things like the Apple case, of being, you know, your world delivered to the NSA. I mean, they don't. I think Apple is resisting this in in large measure, and they've talked about you know the damage to their brand and their in their brief in the New York case in the Eastern District. You know, they don't want to be seen as the phone company. That's like you know, it, it's 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 archaic. It's in bed with the government. You know. And guess what? They didn't <coughs> call it an I not phone. They didn't call it you know a uh, a brick. Um, they called it an I phone. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day. The device is a, is a computer, which can be searched with a warrant, and a telephone, which can be searched pursuant to Title III or FISA. And, you know, at some level, what they're arguing is just not re a reality that's in keeping with the product that they make. Right. Well, maybe they'll go into the typewriter business. What do you think? The I typewriter. Yes. <laughs> um, just as a closing thought on this, um, if anybody wants to read what I think is a really good technical discussion that is written in very plain English of Apple's position on this, and I think Apple has not done a great job of explaining why they're worried that this one workaround they may build for the phone is going to leak out or the risk of that, um, on uh, Just Security, Julian Sanchez has a highly readable and I think very persuasive, actually, argument um, that's doing the job that Apple should probably be trying to do for itself, but it's really worth the read, so check that out if you want to get into more of the technical details of this, which are very important in understanding uh, this case, which we'll be talking about more, I'm sure. 
Um, okay, Ben, the Obama administration. We're finally closing Guantanamo. Yay! Everyone rejoice! Check Yay, that box. Check that box. Check that box. Not. I'm <laughs> okay, so first of all, speaking of personal log rolling, which we do a lot of on this show. Oh, I'm, uh, we're pouring scotch right we now. We are by pouring the way. scotch. <laughs> um, I just want to say that almost eight years ago, uh, I gave testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee in what can only be described as a hostile environment uh, and made the argument that, uh, you know, there was a group of people at Guantanamo that you couldn't try and you couldn't easily transfer or release. And I estimated the size of that population. And I said it was about 100. Um, and so yesterday, as the president uh, gave his latest plan to close Guantanamo, the population of Guantanamo was 91, eight years later. Um, and so first of all, I just want to say, you are I, so damn precious. I nailed that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's start this let's discussion. Let's just take one minute to say Ben, ben was, was, right. was right. Yes. <laughs> I think we should do that often. Every week. <laughs> but um, there is actually, beyond self-congratulation, a serious point to this, um, which is that actually this problem was very foreseeable. Uh, it was foreseen, not just by me. Um, and, and this document is a recognition that you can close Guantanamo, but you can't get away from the problem of Guantanamo. Uh, and so start with the fact that it's a very modest document. It's not about en ending non-criminal detention. It's not about you know, ending the war paradigm. It's not really about anything other than the facility at Guantanamo. And as such, it's not really all that important, except that it's important to Barack Obama's legacy and to keeping a campaign promise that he clearly attaches um, a lot of importance to as part of who he was as president. And he clearly feels strongly about that. So the, the first thing to say is it's a modest document. It's not a effort to you know, as I think the president imagined when he came into office, to close Guantanamo, meaning to close what Guantanamo represented. It's an effort to close a particular facility that he's embarrassed by. Uh, it's also not going to work. Uh, the president made clear in this document that he will not defy the congressional transfer restrictions. And Congress is not going to repeal the transfer restrictions. And therefore, Guantanamo will remain through the rest of the Obama administration. And nobody should kid themselves about that. Finally, uh, I think it's worth noting that the document is entirely reasonable, except for the opening paragraph. Uh, the, the opening paragraph is false. And the rest of the document is entirely reasonable. What's and, the opening paragraph? Uh, the opening paragraph says, uh, that Guantanamo, closing Guantanamo is a national security uh, uh, imperative, that this is a major recruiting tool for the enemy, um, and that uh, there are real military necessities to close it. And, and none of that's actually true. The rest of the document is entirely reasonable. And there's no good reason for Congress not to let the president do what he wants to do here. Um, and, uh, and so I think you should consider this a kind of uh, last gasp of the values-based, symbolism-based uh, counterterrorism approach of the Obama administration that it has mostly abandoned, including in all but the form here. Uh, it is asking for something reasonable, but not all that important, and it won't get it. Am I right that this, this set of proposals was required by Congress? In other words, he had to submit yes. a bunch of proposals that he knew Congress would never allow him to implement. So my question is, given that, and given what you just said, Ben, about the fact that the administration has more or less abandoned the underlying ideological premise that was driving it to, to make closing Guantanamo an imperative, would he even have done this much absent the report requirement? Oh, uh, probably not. 
look, it's not more or less abandoned. This document has a curious phrase in it that refers to the cost savings over the next 20 years mm -hmm. of holding people in the United States versus holding them in Guantanamo. That means that the president... Oh, so it's all about fiscal prudence. Well, oh, okay then. No, but that means that the president who stood up and, and wagged his finger at us and said this war, like all wars, must end in 2013 is today planning for detention facilities management on a 20-year horizon. Um, you know, and that's a very striking thing that they don't admit um, and is obviously true when you read the document. Um, but no, the answer to your question is no. He would not have done this if Congress hadn't required it of him. And by the way, Congress required it of him on a fiction that is itself, you know, completely dishonest, that maybe if there's a, a, a reasonable plan, we'll consider closing Guantanamo, which is, of course, not true. Congress will not consider it. Right, but in handing over the plan, and it's a little bit of a plan without an actual plan within it, um, the administration has checked its final box, right? They can leave office saying, we have given Congress, right? McCain and others have been calling for this plan, calling for the plan to cl close Guantanamo. They can now say, we gave you a plan. Tag, you're it. Right? And that, and that they can, um, in some sense, there, there's a conscience-clearing function here of just saying, we needed to know that we did everything we could. And this plan is sort of the last representation of of maybe the end of this debate for the administration. Yeah, but I, I also think Ben's on to something important when he notes that the 20-year the time frame, because the other thing that's happened over the course of the last seven years is that this is an administration that came in saying it was going to end the global war on terrorism and found itself instead embarking on phase two of that global war, going back into, the, into Iraq uh, and now into Syria to fight ISIS and recognizing ISIS as kind of, you know, threat 2.0. And, so, and they're talking now about this struggle against violent extremism, as they prefer to call it, as a generational struggle. So I also think that events just have overtaken the idea that one could or should uh, eliminate the need for this kind of facility. What are the odds that he just issues an executive order on the way out the door, a la, you know, last day in office pardon style? Zero. Um, or before then? No, no, I think, I think before then or then. He, um, to do that, um, first of all, this, if you were going to do that, you wouldn't release a document that consistently doesn't challenge within weeks or months before doing that. You wouldn't issue a document that consistently doesn't challenge Congress's authority to prevent you from doing that. And this document contains phrases like, if Congress lifts the transfer restrictions, or we will work with Congress to lift the transfer restrictions. Conciliatory. Yeah. All of which it seems to acknowledge that defying the transfer restrictions is not an option. And that's, you know, very different from the tone you take if you mean to use executive action in defiance of an act of Congress. All right. Guantanamo is dead. Long live Guantanamo. Tomorrow. Oh, there's going to be a direct flights now. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, oh, that's sure. good. <laughs> you can visit the whole island um, tomorrow. So if you're applying for a visa to the United States, you really should not post anything about radicalism. Just purge, ISIS. purge your Facebook, you know. So the New York Times had a story uh, at the beginning of the week about announcing that the Department of Homeland Security is planning to step up its examination of social media accounts of all visa applicants and people seeking asylum or refugee status in the United States looking for potential um, radicalization or ties to terrorist organizations or ties to violent extremism or sympathy for violent extremists. Um, and this is, I think, quite obviously a sort of closing the barn door after the horse has fled situation, given that there apparently were indications that the San Bernardino couple had indicated support for um, violent extremism in their social media, although in private messaging, private right? Messages, so not, right. not the stuff that DHS would actually be able to look at in a screening process. But there's also pressure from Congress on this. And so they've come out and said that they have some pilot projects and they want to move in this direction. Um, again, looking just at what's publicly 
available on people's social media accounts. I, I guess there are a couple of things here um, to talk about. One is, you know, for you folks who have more expertise than I do in how the intelligence community tries to parse this information, is it at all feasible that they could actually, I mean, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of visa applicants every year, uh, could they actually go through so social media for all of these people? Or are they going to have to have some kind of criteria that will trigger it? Are they going to be using uh, algorithmic software to do it rather than, you know, reading, in which case, what kind of false positives are we going to get? So is it feasible? Number two, to what extent is this going to make an already lengthy process? You know, okay, we've suspended visa waivers for a lot of people. Uh, now we're going to start looking at everybody's social media. So basically, if you are a non-U.S. citizen and you want to come into the United States even to visit Disney World, you better apply like a year in advance. Um, and so I just, I just don't know if this A makes any difference and B is at all realistic. Look, my gut reaction here is great. Now the agency char uh, the agency that can't keep a three-year-old off the no-fly list is now responsible for figuring out who's who on social media. Hey, oh, as, right. As, so we as should the even parent of a toddler, <laughs> I think That's you of all true. persons people will know how dangerous a three-year-old can That's be. That's true. Yes. Bite true. Hard. He will bite you. <laughs> um, and I and there is good reason to keep my specific child off a plane, um, <laughs> although probably not under the criteria by which one is listed on the no-fly list, right? So the DHS has sort of a history of, we'll call it less than perfect performance on these issues. Uh, you know, look, in terms of kind of the intelligence value of this stuff, it's incredibly hard to verify people's identities. It, like, I don't, it, it's incredibly hard for ordinary people, right, to, to verify that the people they're linked up with in real life are actually, uh, you know, to, to, vet, to uh, verify identity in that realm. That's because well, they don't have Estonian digital ID. Right, right. right. If only everybody Estonian. did, Ben. But in the meantime, like, there are a lot of people on Facebook with the same name. You know. Right, and so like, what are um, you know, whenever you're sort of balancing equities of false positives in the realm of uh, asylum seekers and visa seekers, if you set the balance such that, well, if it's a false positive and some you know person who's not a threat ends up getting excluded, ah shucks, um, that's a problem, right? And so and and everything sort of about the situation incents that kind of uh, calculus. Because by virtue of being um, charged with looking at social media, you're then um, you're then responsible for anything you've missed, right? right? And so you both have you both have a realm in which it's really difficult to even imagine how this sort of how this could meaningfully be executed on a technological level. Right. Um, you know, some intelligence services have um, you know the CIA has their OSINT center, their Open Source Intelligence Center. Um, so there is at least you know some exploration of these issues. Uh, certainly not settled. So you have a, a complex technological uh, arena, uh, an agency that has demonstrated they aren't that good at it, uh, and sort of really bad policy uh, incentives underlying it. Uh, yikes. Thumbs down. Thumbs down from Susan. Yeah, and I was reading this article thinking to myself, okay, so even if you could actually process and read all of these tweets, who's going to be making that call? <laughs> and, and what is the subjectivity this is you going to be exposed to? You just tweet at Jay Johnson. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, no. Hey, Jay, they just denied my visa because I tweeted something sarcastic. About ISIS. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the answer here is um, for the government to compel Facebook and Twitter to build an algorithm to screen out violent extremism. Using yeah. <laughs> Clearly, that's what Jim Comey is after. That old busted law from 1789. Can we just aside, by the way? Law. When did old laws become problematic? Last I checked, like, isn't the Bill of Rights like, pretty I old? Yeah, yeah, the old like, the laws are the best laws. Vintage, they, vintage right. artisanal like laws. Like, the colonial era <laughs> law. That has really been one of the more preposterous things I've seen trotted out with this. Because, like, because, no, because nobody who does it you know, when 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 it's an old law that they like, you get something like he's trampling on the venerable the Bill of Rights, or the principle. bedrock principle of habeas of John at Runnymede. You know, nobody says that old bullshit piece of you know <laughs> habeas toilet paper. Yeah. It's, it's from the 13th century. <laughs> Who needs it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, we've got object lessons. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, so Michael Hayden, uh, the only man in history to be the director of the CIA and the NSA. Is that true? It's true. He also totally looks like the dad in that 70s show. And oh, my God. <laughs> and he's about to be the next guest at the Hoover Book Soiree. Yes, I've heard this. I might actually come to one of these for my first time. Um, has a new book out. Traitor. Oh, that's a terrible way to speak about Mike Hayden. Um, <laughs> Let the record reflect that that comment was not directed at Mike Hayden. Uh, he has a new book out, Playing to the Edge, which, uh, of course, is, relies on his well-trodden metaphor from his Pittsburgh Steelers fandom about playing up to the edge of the line of whatever football players. Chalk on the toes. Chalk on the cleats thing. Look, it's a vivid metaphor. I'm not... He just uses it a lot. Anyway, uh, it's a long book, uh, more than 400 pages. Um, and I have been poking around on some of it, uh, particularly this week. We're looking for what he writes about Stellar Wind, which is the uh, surveillance program that he built. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh. Stellar. Stella. Stella Wind. She's fabulous. <laughs> She's got a drag act in Rehoboth. <laughs> in the off season, um, yes. <laughs> but no. Also, I'm just delighted by the number of times this man actually writes the words "stellar wind," and knowing that every time he's like, ha, "I get to write it again. I get to write it again. I get to write it again." Um, like he uses it a lot, and it's one word, by the way. It's not two. I'm aware. <laughs> you may be cognizant. Can of you this confirm word. or deny that it's one word? Okay. Um, but no, it's, 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 it's a very interesting book. Um, it's highly readable. It very much is in Mike Hayden's voice. Hayden has a very distinct voice. Um, and I thought it was, you know, and it's, it's uh, certainly a contribution to the historical record. What I found most interesting was he sort of does his version of what went down on that famous night that Jim Comey, now the FBI director, raced through the streets of Washington to the bedside of John Ashcroft to ward off Andy Card and Al Gonzalez. Do we get another version of that story? Oh, we totally do. Where we just compile, like, everybody's version of the same night. Yeah, it's great. It's like Rashomon. And basically, Mike Hayden's version of this is like, calm down. Calm down, fella. You know, it wasn't all that. It was a narrow It was a narrow dispute over one part of the program. It was really interesting. And there's a couple jabs at Jim Comey in this. And there's no love lost between these men, clearly. Um, so there's a little bit of score settling going on. Um, a good Washington read, then. Yeah, it was a good Washington read. And, like, um, I did not find myself in the index. I'm so sorry, Shane. I'm sorry for that, too. Maybe next Mike memoir. Hayden. Maybe next memoir. So, yeah, playing well, to the edge. Stellar Check it Wind, out. I think I'm going to be injecting Stellar Wind... Uh, stellar Wind repeatedly into my comments for the next few Stellar it's Wind. It's smelling days. like a lot of Stellar <laughs> Wind around here. There's a lot of wind in this place. <laughs> yeah, so Stellar Wind, I mean Playing of the Edge by Stellar Wind Man, Mike Hayden. Check it, <laughs> check it, check it. Sophia Yans and the Stellar Winds. Damn it, I was going to use that. <laughs> Just for that, mine's going to be especially awful when we get to that part of the podcast. Go ahead. You want to go with your object now? Uh, sure. So my object lesson is uh, a, an object in my office that should be... In our Sylvan retreat of a recording studio. Yes, that should be a model to us all about uh, resilience uh, in the face of adversity. Uh, I bought a small orchid. It bloomed. It died. The orchid faded to little. And I uh, nursed it. And it has come roaring back in, I think, what um, everybody in the room will agree is an unusually impressive bloom. Yeah. It is exuberant. Um, it's something else. And, yeah, it's a sight to behold. And I am, uh, I, I would claim great pride in it, except that the truth of the matter is that I have no idea what is fueling this thing. Clearly the adversity of being in this office. Um, Seriously. So the important thing to understand it's a is a sense of competition <laughs> with the other orchids. It's going to kill you, Ben. <laughs> Ben Wittes' last stand in plants, um, as our uh, insightful associate editor, Cody Poplin, commented the other day upon entering Ben's office, which for the, for the listeners at home is verdant. How would we describe yeah. this? Yes. Yeah. Imagine a jungle. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and Cody had, uh, had mused that, Ben, your office has officially become a parody of your office. Wow. <laughs> that, was, that was the day I installed a fountain. 
All right, so your <laughs> this is a, orchid a compliment is... and a challenge. This... No, this orchid is a symbol. You know, we we always talk about in, in particularly in DHS speak, we talk about resilience as the sort of key to security. And I just want to point out that uh, this orchid symbolizes. He's humble resilience. bragging. He's just happy it's not dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is clearly not a pic dead. A picture will be on the show page for anybody who wants to see what uh, what DHS should be as aspiring to when they talk about resilience. Florid proliferation. <laughs> Tomorrow. Uh, well, um, my object is uh, its a digital object, a virtual object, and it is the most recent Lockyer podcast, uh, which is a truly uh, fascinating conversation between one Ben Wittes, our very own, and, uh, and Leon Wieseltier, the Isaiah Berlin Senior Fellow in Culture and Policy here at the Brookings Institution. And it's a great conversation because Leon and Ben are both uh, interesting people. They're they're talking about the crisis in Syria, the American response. Um, it's interesting because Leon Wieseltier, over the course of a long career, mostly spent at the New Republic, has written and thought a great deal about humanitarian intervention uh, and the ch the challenges for the United States of moral leadership in a complicated world, and applies those to Syria. And it's also just a, a lovely conversation because these are two guys who are thinkers by nature, writers by trade, who have known each other for a couple or more decades at this point, and, uh, and really just have a great back and forth. So I just wanted to commend that to, to all our listeners. Yeah, it's super good, and, uh, and particularly timely at this moment now when it really, it's asking <laughs> the hard moral questions about what's going on in Syria. And who we are as Americans in that conflict. That's uh, it was really good. Thanks. Did he really not give you an internship in the Republic? Oh, it's far worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> Your revenge comes. So my object lesson. Oh yes. Um, is this very large bottle of fine scotch, which is now considerably <laughs> emptier than it was in the beginning of the podcast? Um, we've been drinking uh, this scotch throughout the Rational Security Podcast, as you may have been able to sort of... Um, I don't know what would give people that idea. Through, the, through <laughs> the airwaves at this point. Um, and I am drinking this, this glass of scotch because I have spent the week on public radio, and not mostly speaking about the Apple case, and not just, um, you know, sort of uh, interviews on public radio, but call-in radio. So you've been speaking to... The heart and soul of America, real people, people real of people, the earth, including the people who at seven o'clock in the morning call C-SPAN to tell oh, you yeah. that they think Tim Cook should go to jail, which is one, uh, we'll call it a strident position. Um, we had, I had people uh, call who uh, are very concerned about the possibility of nuclear weapons. Uh, in in Cupertino, California. Um, you mean Apple is hiding nuclear weapons? <laughs> no, no, no. That there are terrorists in Cupertino, California, <laughs> and like, wouldn't Apple then unlock the phone? Uh, so it, was, it was like they, the 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 twenty four. The logic is very compelling, right? Um, and while it has been um, a, a challenging and um, and I certainly welcome uh, opportunities to share my views with those who will have me, um, it has really been welcoming. Uh, it has really been a, sort of an incredible uh, insight into the minds of people who decide to call into these places with their questions. Um, but Susan, these group? are the people who are deeply engaged by public affairs. This is your have core you audience. Was this you your was this your first in? time on C-SPAN on a call show? Oh, yeah. yeah. I just I just sit over here just like giggling with delight, like welcome to my world. Yeah. 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 Now and you for know. all that, no you idea. get a coffee mug. This is why your first time. I am oh. such a dissenter from those people at Brookings who argue for greater voter participation. <laughs> <laughs> because you know what we've seen is if you increase voter participation, uh, these are the people who you're actually suggesting should come out and vote. Has anyone in this room ever called a radio show, not as a guest, but as like a call yes, person? Yes, I did not, once. But not since I was a teenager. Yeah, not okay. since Has anyone school. ever called C-SPAN? 
No. Ever. No. Okay, never. So we have one instance of Shane Hartzog. Let's face it, is the fringe of all of us. Truly. Shane is truly yeah, the fringe. And I, and I do that to keep my fringe status. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta keep your streak Yeah. Good. I just want to go on C SPAN one day and have Cher call in. Do you know she calls C-SPAN? No! I have no idea! You need to go on YouTube right now no, and Google upset. Cher calling C-SPAN. And it's brilliant <laughs> because she called in like 2003 talking actually about PTSD and wounded uh, veterans mm-hmm. and things well before Walter Reed mm-hmm. was a scandal. Because huh. she had been going and doing like entertainment and shows and visiting these people and she calls in and she's like, no one understands. These people are coming back from these brain injuries. And she doesn't identify herself. And you can tell that the host is like, how do you know about this? Like, are you volunteering? Are you in the entertainment business? Like, funny question. Then he just goes, are you Cher? <laughs> and she just goes, yeah. Did anybody ask you that, Susan, whether you were Cher? No, but I'm going to start asking every person who calls it on Cher. Are you Cher? Cher? All right, go ahead, call her. <laughs> well, you George earned your drink, Susan. Are you Cher? Cher and the stellar winds. <laughs> God, again you're taking these names from me. Oh, just you wait until we get to the musical credits, my friend. Ah. Oh. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can, of course, find links to our past shows in our archive, our archive, at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, and please remember when you download the podcast to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out. The podcast is edited by Jen Howell. The music was performed this week by Comey Chameleon. <laughs> oh, nice one. I thought, you were gonna go, I thought you were going to go with Comey and the Homies. Comey and the Homies? Oh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like my bite out of apple joke at the beginning. Yeah. I'm done. I was out from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, of course, our music was performed by Sophia Yan, who Ben, by the way, helpfully pointed out on Facebook this week. That song is... It's the great Astor Piazzolla. Uh, in Adios Naninos. Uh, uh, and if you uh, go to my Facebook page, uh, you can uh, see the link to it and hear the original uh, Astro Piazzolla performance of it. It's quite, it's, it's a wonderful piece. Yeah, and Sophia Yan renders it beautifully for us every week. Thank you, Sophia. Uh, on behalf of my good friends Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. 